The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. Anteater Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, everybody. This is UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer. And my guest today is retired UCI medical doctor and professor, Ron Sherman, who originally studied insects as an undergrad at UC Riverside before going on to earn his medical degree at UCLA in 1983. From there, he studied tropical medicine at the University of London. And now get this, Dr. Sherman has a unique expertise in wound maggot leech therapy. From 1989 to 1991, he held a postdoctoral fellowship at UCI, where he initiated the first clinical trials of this kind of therapy. In 1996, he joined the UCI faculty to study maggot biochemistry, and he retired from UC Irvine in 2008, but his laboratory still produces medicinal maggots for use throughout North America. Welcome, Dr. Ron Sherman. How are you today? Thank you very well, and thank you for allowing me to share some time with you. Excellent. Well, well, please, let's just start from the beginning. Where did you grow up, and what did you like to do when you were a kid? (laughs) I was born and raised in Los Angeles and grew up collecting everything, bugs, rocks, stamps, coins. By the time I got to uh, junior high school, I focused those hobbies on insects. It seemed more interesting playing with bugs that were live than some of the other things. And so when I went to college, uh, I decided to major in entomology and play with bugs some more. Yeah, interesting. So when you were growing up, were there particular favorites? (laughs) I do have favorites. Butterflies always seemed a little bit too popular for me Um, and a little flashy and showy. Uh, (laughs) That was, that's why I didn't take much interest in butterflies. I focused mainly on the coleoptera, which are beetles and Uh, the diptera, which are flies. Okay. And what was it about them that you thought was interesting? Well, for the beetles, they are rather colorful and diverse. Really, most of the insects are extraordinarily diverse. And 
for whatever reason, attractive to me. But the the Beatles, I don't know why, especially the Beatles caught my attention, but but they did. Maybe they were some of the largest of the non-butterfly group uh, where I lived. And for the flies, I mean, nobody likes flies. So I was interested in learning more about them. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I have interviewed uh, film crew, particularly the uh, Karate Kid director, and he talked about fly manipulation, and they used a blonde hair so it didn't show up on camera. I think they put honey on it, and that the, they could manipulate the behavior of the fly somewhat. Did you come across any of that type of thing in your work, or no, it was completely different? I did not really focus on that sort of thing. The closest I got to movie star insects was on the set for Chicago Hope, where a number of years ago they decided to film a program about maggot therapy. And they asked me to teach them about it and then to come on set to help ensure authenticity, they said. So we even brought our own larvae and showed it to them. And they said, oh, those are tiny. Nobody will ever see them. We use these. And they held up a bottle of beetle larvae, tenebrionids. They're like two inches long, and they're commonly used to feed lizards and things like that. Mealworms. The common name is mealworms. Mm-hmm. These things are huge. So there I was watching them beetle larvae on a, an actor supposed to be getting maggot therapy, and I was there to ensure authenticity. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, that's, that's show business. <laughs> well, very good. So you went to uh, UC Riverside, and do you recall, you know, in your undergrad education was there a particular moment or area that you were like focused on or learned about that was like, oh, I had no idea or I didn't know anything about it? Or was it just a continuum of your education? Well, I was interested in insects and had read a lot, but there was a lot that I didn't know. And that is one of the things that I enjoyed about entomology and have made sure remains a part of my life still to this day, is is always learning new things, new things, lots of new things still that I don't know. So I learned a lot of, of new stuff as an entomology undergraduate. But if there was anything that really surprised me, um, come to think of it, I hadn't really thought of this before, um, it would be when I was writing a term paper on bee sting allergies and opened up a book by uh, Marcel Leclerc about medical entomology, the crossroads between medicine and insects. And there I found, this was now 1978, I found a chapter about the history of maggots being used for wound care. That was the first time I'd ever seen that or heard about that. Yeah. Wow. Interesting. 
So at that point, were you already thinking medical school or do you think that that was a pivotal moment for that? That was not a pivotal moment. I had already been planning on going to medical school. Mm. But as an undergraduate, I kept that pretty much a secret. <laughs> How come? How come? Well, I, I may be speaking a little bit um, hyperbolically, but I wasn't sure whether I would definitely apply mm. to medical school. I wasn't sure whether I could even get into medical school. Right. That was a dream of mine. Yeah. Uh, nonetheless. But I did not want to simply study a program that was uh, purely for pre-med. I wanted a degree in something that I both enjoyed and would be glad to pursue if I did not make it into medical school. Mm -hmm. And that's why I chose entomology as my major and music as my minor. Mm. So, So I was already interested in in medicine, I focused on medical entomology uh, and would have gone to graduate school in medical entomology had I not been uh, accepted to regular medical school. Can you distinguish for us what medical entomology is? Medical entomology is really supposed to be the field of entomology that focuses on insects that cause disease, that have a medical importance, a medical a role in medicine. So we usually consider those as uh, insects and other arthropods, spiders, ticks, centipedes, things like that, that either cause disease directly or are parasites or maybe they are vectors of disease-causing bacteria, protozoa, etc. So this would include things like mosquitoes, um, biting ticks. The mosquitoes carry, you know, yellow fever, the vectors of yellow fever, and dengue, and Zika, and encephalitis, various forms of encephalitis. You've got the tsetse fly, you've got Chagas disease carried by biting bugs, what we call true bugs. And all of these things are generally a a critical part of medical entomology. Um, Most people do not think about insects that uh, help treat disease as being a real part of medical entomology. Do you focus a lot on that helpful in, in insects to the human population? Yes, indeed. I like to focus on the beneficial insects. What I sometimes differentiate from medical entomology as entomological medicine. Mm. Very good. So when you were at UCLA, I guess that, that was your emphasis area or or not? Was it straightforward at UCLA or or was there a specialty area? So medical school at UCLA was pretty much like any medical school, though it was UCLA. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yes, right. uh, It's really just a basic medical 
education, not what we would call a medical specialty. Mm -hmm. Specialization is done after medical school in what we might call postdoc uh, education, uh, what in medicine is called internship, residency, or fellowships. I did have exposure to maggot therapy at UCLA, and that was quite fortuitous, but not part of the formal education. Uh, that was simply a uh, the chief of plastic surgery, Ed Hector, who saw me as a student on his service wearing a um, butterfly bow tie. And so he asked me if I knew about bugs. And I said, yes, I was an entomology major as an undergraduate. And he said he was writing a paper about the history of maggot therapy in surgery. And would I be willing to assist with um, interpreting and understanding some of the entomology background. And so there it was, uh, maggot therapy popping up for the second time mm. in my education. I uh, joined him and, and that was our first paper. It was published in 1983. Did you do residency after UCLA or is that part of the UCLA program? After I graduated from UCLA, I moved over to do my internship in San Francisco hmm. and my residency in internal medicine at UC Davis. I took a year off in between because I was a little bit uh, disenchanted by medicine hmm. uh, after my internship. Uh, so I took a year off and worked as a GP uh, and a hmm. traveling doc in rural Arizona. But I liked it again. I liked what I, I did there in medicine. So I finished up my residency at UC Davis, took another year and a half off to do the master's degree in London, and then came back to the U.S. and did my postdoc as a fellow in infectious diseases at UCI. Gotcha. When you're at the University of London uh, studying tropical medicine, Anything remarkable about that that you remember? That experience was uh, absolutely amazing and enriching and enlightening because now I was exposed to people from all over the world. I was living in a very, very different culture. The only similarity I found was the language. And even that was not always too similar. <laughs> there were many times when someone would ask me to grab a torch and I had no idea what they were talking about <laughs> or the boot of a car or whatnot. So even the language was different. Nonetheless, this was a program for physicians from all over the world who wanted to specialize in tropical medicine and international health. And it was a very clinically oriented program. Mm -hmm. So in this small class size of 24 students, we had people from South America, Yemen, Saudi Arabia, uh, Somalia, Egypt, Nigeria, wow. from Germany, Sri Lanka, my roommates, were from Germany and Sri Lanka, 
people from the Netherlands, not many from Asia, but from almost every other part of the world, including Canada and New Zealand and Australia and South Africa. It was just a wonderful, diverse group. That is really amazing. Doctor, just excuse me for a moment while I refresh our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, if you join us late, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my guest today is maggot biochemistry expert, Dr. Ron Sherman, uh, sharing all about his interesting experiences and you know, how he learned about this field. And basically, we're getting right to the point where he comes to UCI to do postdoc work. Doctor, can you tell us what that was all about? After I finished my master's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, I really didn't know what I wanted to do after that. I had applied for a position at the World Health Organization, working at their newly designed program on AIDS in Bangladesh. They needed someone to help with that program. This was back in 1988 now, when there weren't a lot of people working in HIV. So I applied for that, went to Geneva for an interview, and they looked at me and said, what are you doing here? You're just a kid. You're only 30 years old. We don't take people here to get their experience. You know, check us out in 25 years and then ask for a job. That was my first interview. My second interview didn't go as well. So I came back to the U.S. and applied for a position at UCI that was listed initially for the AIDS program, uh, but I needed to do a, a fellowship first. So I agreed to do the two-year Infectious Diseases Fellowship. And what I did there was really focus and learn about infectious diseases, how to treat them, how to diagnose them, become a specialist in infectious disease. And during that fellowship, I needed a research project. So since I was seeing a lot of non-healing wounds and infected hardware, you know, artificial joints, um, steel and bolts and screws to fix broken legs, that sort of thing that were getting infected. And they had multi-drug multi resistant microbes. So the regular antibiotics weren't working. Mm -hmm. And in order to get a restricted brand new kill everything antibiotic, they had to ask someone and get permission from someone in the infectious diseases program. They're, they are restricted antibiotics. And we fellows, we postdocs in infectious diseases, were the ones, we were the ones that were the gatekeepers. So I was seeing all these really tough wounds and infections, and it brought back to mind maggot therapy. Would maggot therapy be useful in today's state of medicine. 
And that was the question I decided to ask and answer in my uh, postdoc research program. Were you working under a specific professor in a specific lab during that fellowship? I was not working under any one specific person uh, for the bulk of the fellowship. However, once you declare a a research interest, you do need to work with, with someone. I had been doing some research even prior to that, but it wasn't my main research project. So even before I had to pick a research project, I was very interested in the work of Laurie Thrupp, who is in the infectious diseases department. He does some fantastic work with antibiotics and was very generous to take me under his wing. We, we did some work with blood cultures, looking at contaminations, looking at the efficacy of antibiotics for urinary tract infections and so forth. And so when I declared my interest in doing this maggot therapy clinical research for pressure ulcers in the spinal cord injury unit at the VA Medical Center in Long Beach, one of UCI's teaching hospitals, Professor Thrupp was very generous in allowing me to use some of the laboratory space to even grow the flies and raise the maggots. And then the other professor that I worked with uh, was Frederick Weil, who was the chief of medicine and infectious diseases at the VA, who really uh, um, mainly sponsored the clinical work that I did by um, co-writing the grant proposals, by providing me with some laboratory space, and certainly the very strong administrative support that was necessary to get this project through the IRB and um, uh, approved to be done in the hospital. Wow. So tell us all about maggot therapy. And, And first of all, I think I was a little off track. I was thinking of maggots as being kind of wormish, but do I have that wrong? Did you, did you just say that they're flies? Uh, you have that correct. Maggot mm-hmm. is the specific term for fly larvae. So okay. a butterfly larva would be called a caterpillar. A beetle larva would be called a grub. And a fly larva is called a maggot. It's rather unfortunate because if I put fly larvae on a patient and they were called caterpillars, I probably wouldn't have such a hard time (laughs) getting through the administration. But they happen to be called maggots. So that's just my lot. (laughs) And do maggots look like... Tiny worms? Would you describe it like that or not? You could describe it like that, though worms as a general category is is quite a wide variety. Maggots are certainly commonly called worms, um, but to end there would uh, leave a little bit of doubt because worms in general 
vary so much in size and behavior and so forth. Earthworms are worms. Um, uh, various parasites in the gut are called worms. They come in all sizes and maggots are pretty small. Um, and even maggots vary quite a bit from one fly species to another. The kind of maggots that I work with come from a very specific fly called Phoenicia sericata in the US or Lucilia sericata in the rest of the world. And these are different in behavior from other types of fly larvae. That's why they're of benefit and others can cause harm. Hmm, wow. So how did you find that there were some maggots that were beneficial and some that are not beneficial? Was that part of your research or was that already discovered and you just had to read about it? That was pretty much already discovered. And all I had to do was read about it. There's a mm -hmm. lot written since the time of William Baer, who was the first chair of orthopedic surgery at Johns Hopkins. Mm -hmm. And he really should be credited as the first person to develop maggot therapy to intentionally put maggots raised in the hospital laboratory, his laboratory, onto patients. And he uh, presented his work at a conference in 1929. And his uh, research was published, albeit posthumously, in 1931, uh, where he discussed the species that he used and so forth. The best way to think about it today is to acknowledge the fact that flies are a diverse group and they feed on lots of different things. Even mosquitoes belong to the diptera or fly group of insects. But of those flies that could be considered possibly beneficial, we could divide those into a couple of subgroups. There are some that feed on dead tissue, dead bodies. You'll find these flies at the side of a corpse, a dead animal on the side of the road. Many of them, not all, but many of them really can't tell the difference between the dead body and dead tissue on a live body. We call that gangrene. So when these flies are on the dead tissue of a live person, necrotic tissue or gangrene, they will feed on that and that's why they are beneficial. Other flies that will land on people, some of those are actually invasive and will deposit eggs which will hatch and those maggots will burrow into the skin those are things like the tumbu fly and the human bot fly. The screwworm fly can be very invasive as well. So these are not appropriate for maggot therapy. Wow. So will all maggots turn into flies at some point? By definition, all maggots turn into flies as long as they survive. Mm -hmm. So that's it's difficult, right? In the hospital, does it have to be an isolated area? Because, right, you don't want 
flies hatching into your hospital, right? I certainly don't want flies hatching in my hospital. Yeah, how do you handle that? The best way to describe that would really be to understand the uh, principle of maggot infestations on people. That's called myiasis. As I described, myiasis can be invasive, destructive, or myiasis may not be uh, invasive. It may be opportunistic. The fly may be there or the fly may deposit eggs which hatch into larvae and they may be on the wound or on the gangrenous tissue and only feed on the gangrenous tissue that is beneficial. Maggot therapy is really a therapeutic controlled myiasis. It's a maggot infestation that's being controlled to optimize efficacy and safety. And we do that by a number of methods. Number one, we ensure that a very specific fly species is used so we know that it will only be effective, safe, and not invasive. We also use controls by disinfecting that maggot, by removing the germs, making it germ-free so that we don't introduce any germs into the wound. We also control this maggot as a therapeutic product by having quality control measures in the laboratory to check that it really is germ-free and so forth. And finally, there are control methods at the bedside that the doctors or nurses or physical therapists will use when applying and removing the maggots. They are put into a dressing that acts as a cage to prevent the maggot from leaving the wound. And then when treatment is finished, two days later, they will remove the dressings and put it in a special trash bag for hospital waste that is potentially infectious. All wet dressing waste goes into one of these special containers called a biohazardous waste bag. And there it will be autoclaved or incinerated depending on the state regulation. So basically, flies don't hatch because we gather the maggots before they can hatch and they're destroyed in order to prevent any infection from the wound, not from the original maggot, but the maggot is now covered with the germs from the wound. We want to make sure that those germs don't get out. Mm, very interesting. Excuse me one more time, doctor. Ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and my special guest today is retired UCI faculty member, Dr. Ron Sherman, sharing all about his expertise in maggot and leech therapy. I know it sounds kind of gross, but Dr. Sherman is here to tell us all about the wonderful use of this therapeutic benefit. So, Doctor, why is maggot therapy better than other therapies? I wouldn't describe it as better than other therapies necessarily. 
but it certainly is better in some situations than others are in those situations. So I'm a believer in focusing treatment to match the patient, to match the situation and so forth, and uh, not, you know, one size fits all kind of person. Mm -hmm. There are many choices for cleaning a wound. And we didn't even discuss yet what it is that the maggot does for the wound. I should probably specify that. Yeah, please do. Answer this question. Yeah, thank you. In the literature, you will find described three basic mechanisms of action by which the medical grade maggots help treat chronic non-healing wounds. The main action is called debridement. And debridement is basically wound cleaning. Now they get that dead tissue out of the wound. Until you get all the dead tissue and debris out of the wound, it can't successfully close and heal. The way the maggots do that is by secreting their digestive enzymes and the dead tissue dissolves. They then suck it up. That's how they feed and continue secreting their digestive enzymes to dissolve more and more and more of this dead tissue, infected tissue and debris. They don't have teeth. They don't bite off pieces and their digestive enzymes are incapable of dissolving healthy tissue. So this is really fortuitous for us because now you have a device that very selectively removes only the dead infected tissue and not the healthy tissue. Now let's look at the alternatives for that. A very common alternative, especially for serious wounds that are limb-threatening, life-threatening, is surgery. And you can cut that dead tissue out, or you can totally amputate the limb if necessary. But even if you try and do a careful surgical debridement with a scalpel, you will either take all of the dead tissue out and some of the live with it, or you will avoid removing any live tissue, but you will also miss parts of the dead infected tissue. It is not possible for the surgical blade to follow precisely that interface between living and dead tissue. But the maggot can do that because they're not physically removing that tissue. They are enzymatically removing that. Another alternative we commonly use in wounds, especially that are not that serious, are enzymatic debriding agents, ointments, salves, and other kinds of dressings that have enzymes in it to remove the dead tissue. But most of those products are not as selective, and so they can cause some damage to live tissue. And they are also extremely slow. It usually takes months for a wound to be completely debrided with one of those agents. Now, that's fine if someone has months to spend and the speed is not urgent. They're easy to apply by the patient or the nurse. But 
for more serious wounds, you just don't have that kind of time because the longer you wait on a chronic wound, the less likely it's going to heal ultimately. That's really the goal is wound healing usually. So the maggots are beneficial compared to other options. If you're in a hurry, a real super hurry, and it's an emergency and the infection is going to spread, you do surgery, you do amputation. But if you have two days to spare, three days to spare, then you have the time to apply a maggot dressing and it will be more precise. And in fact, in published studies of patients with non-healing wounds that have failed all other treatments and are now scheduled for amputation, but given maggot therapy as a last resort, in those published studies, those patients healed their wounds with the maggot therapy and did not require amputation in 40 to 70% of cases. So that illustrates how the maggots can be very beneficial, even in situations where amputation is a consideration. Just to have some perspective here, there are over 100,000 amputations per year in the United States alone, just for wounds in people living with diabetes who have developed foot ulcers. And maggot therapy can help in this area? Yes, maggot therapy can help with this. A study done at Kaiser Permanente in Hawaii, published a few years ago, showed that about 70% of their diabetic foot ulcer patients scheduled for amputation were able to totally avoid amputation or have a much smaller surgical procedure than originally planned once they were given maggot therapy. That's incredible. Very impressive results. Right. Well, it's got to be impressive results for someone to want to put a maggot on your foot. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We wouldn't do that if it weren't really, really dramatic, beneficial effects. Is it because there's a relative small amount of people who use megatherapy? Because you don't really hear about it. Can you give us a a sense of that? You don't seem to read about it in the newspapers. I guess I vaguely knew the term, and it was a little bit of like, is it a secret? Uh, How can I answer this? Um, Many people don't hear much about maggot therapy because, to be honest, it's not considered a selling point by a lot of facilities. There are many hospitals around Orange County even that do maggot therapy but don't publicize it. Mm -hmm. There are doctors who Mm -hmm. don't want people to think that their surgical prowess is any less because they depend on maggots. They consider it an insult that someone might think that that they need maggots. And yet there are many other doctors, star clinicians in the States, star clinicians in the world who are happy as anything to be using the maggots 
because they recognize that it's really just another tool. And it is them that still is in charge. They're the ones that made the decisions. They're the ones that healed that wound without amputation. And they don't care whether it's a maggot that they picked up or a saw. So Mm -hmm. there's a lot of mixed feelings out there as far as how much publicity one can read. It seems to go in waves. There was a lot of publicity a few years ago with scores and scores of newspaper articles uh, writing about it, but it's quite variable. There was a a little bit of notoriety that the megatherapy got after 9-11. We sent maggots to Washington, D.C. for some of the Pentagon burn victims. That was a very interesting story because FedEx and all other planes were down. So FEMA flew a plane themselves to carry the maggots and a few other emergency supplies from California all the way to Pennsylvania. Then it got a police escort into Washington, D.C. because no planes at all were going to fly over Washington, D.C. for the next several days. And that got some attention on Oprah and so on and so forth. But at other times, it gets done, but it's not a big media attraction. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. My guest is retired UCI professor, Dr. Ron Sherman. He is an expert on insects and using maggots to clean problem wounds that are infected and in danger of being amputated. Now back to the interview. Are there multiple labs that supply maggots throughout the United States? Our lab is the only maggot-producing laboratory in North America. Uh, We provide maggots uh, in the states, all 50 Mm -hmm. states, and Canada. Um, There are multiple labs around the world, however, about 24 laboratories around the world. We published our methods back in 1996, so that anyone could easily learn to produce maggots. And that's advantageous because the maggots are highly perishable. They need to feed, they need to eat, they need to get oxygen, and they will die in a few days if not placed on a wound. So that makes shipping uh, long distances difficult and makes storage impossible. So each country or each region of the world really should have their own local laboratories. Is it a big laboratory? Does it take a lot of space to produce as much (laughs) larva that you you need? It takes very little space Hmm. to run a maggot-producing laboratory. And I really had very little space when I was at UCI. And that was really sufficient until the FDA began to regulate medicinal maggots. And at that point, we needed to comply with FDA regulatory issues, good manufacturing procedures, which required more space to do these various quality control tasks and protections against adulteration and all the other things that are involved in GMP, good manufacturing practices. And that is the point at which the university explained that compliance 
with FDA was not in their best interest, and I needed to get the laboratory off campus. And so the laboratory was taken off campus in 2005. Now we have 4,000 square feet, but only a a small part of that is for the maggot production itself. Much of the rest of the building is office space, administrative space, record keeping for all the batches for 10 years, as well as my research area. So can you store eggs? Does it take a lot of flies to produce all this larva or how is that done? We have 40 cages of flies. 10 are being washed at any one time. 30 are housing flies. In those cages, we have 2,000 flies each. And about half are laying eggs at any one time. We collect half a million eggs per week. Some of those are used to recycle or repopulate the colony. The colony is now 31 years old. And the rest of the eggs are used to produce medical grade maggots. Wow. Wow. What's the life of a fly and what's the life of a larva? So let me begin the life cycle at the egg. Um, the, the egg comes first in my story, not the adult, not the fly. <laughs> the uh, I'm certain of that. <laughs> the egg will hatch, depending on temperature, about 12 hours. Hot, warmer temperatures speed up this cycle that I'll describe. Colder temperatures reduce it. So we maintain a constant temperature throughout most of the laboratory so we can predict all of the timing. The maggot egg for the species we use hatches about 12 to 13 hours. At that point, maggot or uh, hatchling will come out of the egg and it's about two millimeters long. It will feed and grow over the next 12 to 24 hours and then it will molt or shed its skin and become a little larger, shed its cuticle and become a little larger. It will do that a second time, another 12 to 24 hours later, depending on temperature. And the third time, it will continue to grow until it's about half an inch long, one centimeter, almost a half an inch long. And at that point, it is finished feeding and will leave the host, leave the wound, leave the dead body, whatever it's feeding on. And at that point, it's about three days or so that have, that have passed, mm-hmm. three to four days. Mm-hmm. It then crawls as far as it can go. Bernie Greenberg measured that at over a uh, hundred yards and Once it finds a satisfactory place, it will bury itself in the ground, under a rock, under some debris, so that it can pupate or make a cocoon. It's going to stay in that cocoon, immobile stage, for about 10 days. And then out of that will emerge or eclose 
will emerge an adult fly. Female flies will not be able to lay eggs for about seven to 14 days. But the male flies are already fertile. Egg laying will continue for about four weeks. The first two weeks are the most productive. Uh, the flies will lay about 2,000 eggs during their life, usually in batches of 100 to 200, 250 eggs at a time. By the time they reach about four weeks old, they are not producing many eggs anymore, but they could continue to live for up to another four or five weeks. Wow. This is truly an amazing doctor. I had no idea, and I'm sure 99% of the listeners had no idea about this area. Wow. Wow. Now, um, related to that, I should note, and this is a bit sad, a lot of people are really not very much aware of maggot therapy even though they have serious wounds. They may get treated for three months, six months, even six years for these wounds and change from treatment to treatment to treatment. Often, it is not until the doctor says, you know, nothing's working and it's progressing. It's just too big now. We need to cut off your leg. Often, it's not until that point that patients and families decide they need to look into this and see what other options there are and discover us. They discover maggot therapy on the internet. It's all over the internet and they'll call us. Unfortunately, by that time, there's been a lot of damage. There's been a lot of life that they've lost, you know, that they've been spending being off their foot or taking care of their wounds or being embarrassed to be in public because of all the bad odor of uh, drainage coming from their wounds. And the circulation has deteriorated significantly by that time, that that is why the doctor feels an amputation is appropriate. And I'm not saying that it isn't in many cases. Yet, again, those published studies show that even at that late stage, if you look at patients who require amputation electively, not emergently within the next 24 hours, um, but electively, then 40 to 70% of those could be avoided. And it's just sad that people don't remember or think about. It's just sad that some people don't think about maggot therapy earlier in order to avoid some of those situations because it's much more effective before all that circulatory damage has happened by waiting month after month after month. Very interesting. How long has maggot therapy been around? As far as we know from good written records, William Baer at Johns Hopkins was the first to intentionally apply maggots 
two wounds. He treated primarily children with bone infections due to tuberculosis back in the 1920s and early 1930s. It became very popular in the 1930s and thousands of doctors in the US, Canada and Europe were using maggot therapy. Many hospitals had their own insectaries to supply the maggots. But for those that didn't, Letterly Labs, a very large pharmaceutical firm, sold maggots all over the country. Then in mid to late 1940s, it pretty much disappeared with the advent of modern antibiotics. Mm. A lot of people believed that the antibiotics replaced the maggots, but I don't believe that at all. I used to, but I don't believe that anymore because antibiotics can't do what maggots do. They debride the wound and the antibiotics just kill bacteria. They can't even kill bacteria in the dead parts of the wound because there's no blood flow to take them there. Mm. And what I believe actually happened was that the landscape of chronic non-healing wounds was changed by the advent of antibiotics. Once we could give penicillin for a strep throat, it didn't spread to the blood into the skin, causing abscesses and bone infections and heart infections and kidney infections that ultimately ruptured through with abscesses and sinus tracts and wounds. When we could use antibiotics after a dog bite, after an accident, some trauma, and prevent infection from setting into those cuts and damages, we could prevent a lot of the non-healing wounds that previously occurred. But over the next few decades, other advances in medicine and surgery allowed us to keep alive people with spinal cord injuries until they eventually developed pressure ulcers. We were now able with insulin and dialysis to keep people living with diabetes alive long enough to develop foot ulcers and require treatment for those. So by 1980s, we were seeing lots and lots of non-healing wounds all over again, but from different causes. And that's the point in 1990 that we said, you know, now that we've got all these non-healing wounds all over again, maybe maggot therapy can help us. Wow. Is there any recognized downside to maggot therapy? It, it seems like a wonderful solution for people. Is there an, any negative to it? The only downside I can think of about maggot therapy is the fact that they're maggots. Yeah. And that is a downside. I mean, these are living things, so they cannot be stored or stocked. You have to order them right before you need them so that they're alive. They have to be applied in a dressing that cages them in so that they don't leave on their own accord before the medical staff is ready to remove the dressing and dispose of it properly. Really, those are 
the downsides. And when you're talking about this certain special type of fly, does it look at all like when we get a house fly in our house, is it always the same kind of house fly or, or no, no, you, we get all different kinds of house flies. Is this maggot fly, you know, recognizable to the general public? Well, I don't know what kind of flies are in your house, but <laughs> uh, we don't discriminate in our house and we get all different kinds of flies. Uh, you know, I think, you know, because you're an insect person, you know, <laughs> you know I think they're all the same. <laughs> That's so amazing. There, there is a specific fly called a house fly, Musca mm. domestica, mm. and it wears a gray coat with some black and white pinstripes. And that's common in houses. And then there's one that looks almost like it, but it's much bigger. And that would be a flesh fly, sarcophagid. But if you see any of those metallic colored green ones, and they also related species come in blue and black and mm. gold, those metallic flies, those are califorids or blowflies. And that's what we use. Those are wow. the ones that would normally be found in your trash can, mm. on dog poop, but especially on dead bodies and dead parts of oh. live vertebrates. Wow. Doctor, we've gone way over time. Thank you so much for this enlightening, amazing work that's just, you know, state of the art at this point in the medical profession. And we thank you for your work. You're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you again to Dr. Ron Sherman for his excellent tour of this very specialized medical procedure called magotherapy. Under specific circumstances, in one's time of need, maggot therapy sounds like an outstanding option. Kudos to Dr. Sherman and his team. Hear, hear. Now it's time once again to turn the page to the Ash Coomer Show at the top of the hour. For more interesting talk radio on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. You've been listening to the UCI Conversation Show the weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters. You can hear an encore edition of this show or any of my past shows at my podcast website at www.bossenmeyer.com. Comments and suggestions are always welcome at kboss at kuci.org. I'm your host, Kevin Bostenmeyer. It's been my pleasure to be your host today. And don't forget, the fall quarter is just around the corner. If you have not done so yet, get vaccinated, wear a mask, and stay safe. So long, everybody. Enjoy Fred Kaplan on the piano on the way out. (laughs) 